Welcome to season four of The Culture of Kindness. My name is Nahala Summers and I am your host. A culture of kindness is based on the idea that by bringing kindness into leadership, we reduce stress, anxiety, make happier workplaces, and in turn, improve the bottom line for any organization or institution. It is a book, leadership program, accreditation, and of course, this wonderful podcast. Kindness has been my life's work since I founded the social movement for kindness back in 2012 called Sunshine People. And it has kept me interested on what people have to say on the complexities of kindness ever since. The guest lineup is exceptional. From politicians to social media influencers, best-selling authors to BBC presenters, an eclectic mix of people who all have completely different views on kindness, how we get it and where the world is currently at. If you enjoy this episode, then please do show your support for kindness by subscribing to the podcast, leave a five-star review or simply invest in the book, aptly named A Culture of Kindness, available on Amazon. Thanks so much. I hope you enjoy. Welcome, Siobhan, to A Culture of Kindness podcast, season four. I am incredibly excited to be speaking to you. Uh, I have such an interest in the political world. I have an interest in kindness in politics, uh, what it looks like, what it doesn't look like, all of that. And you, in my opinion, are one of the best people to be speaking to about this. Um, An incredible history within the political world, doing fantastic things. And I really feel that you have seen the rough end of things as well and really seen what it's like. Uh, so I'm excited to talk to you about that and uh, and those learnings. I guess first of all, though, just to because I know lots about you yeah. uh, and that, and because I've read lots about you. But but to to anyone who might not be aware of you, and I'd be very surprised if they don't. Uh, what, what give a bit about sure. who you are and what makes you happy. Well, that's very nice of you to introduce me like that. But I'm sure lots of people haven't heard of me um, because my I'm, I mean. Where do I start? I was a civil servant. So um, my first job, straight out of university, I went into the civil service. I spent a really enjoyable, um, I would say 14 odd years of that were very enjoyable in the civil service. Um, Lots of different jobs there, lots of different departments, got a real sense of how government works, central government and local government. Um, And I spent six years in the cabinet office. I got a really good overview of how, from the centre, of how ministers and officials across government work together. What was working well and what wasn't wasn't working well. Um, And in um, 2011, so the um, coalition government came in and it was the first time that I felt as a civil servant that my own personal values were being stretched for me too far, actually, because you know as a civil servant that you have to be impartial. That's what we're proud of in the UK civil service. But for the first time, I was in Department of Health when they came in. I was being asked to introduce a policy that I didn't personally agree with, but neither had it been in the manifesto. So I didn't. I couldn't fall back on the, well, the public have voted for this. And it was the big reforms of the National Health Service. And at the same time that I was being asked to help implement these reforms, number 10 was saying, we're not going to be reforming 
the National Health Service is not going to be any big top-down reforms. And I was like, this is just not right. You know, this isn't right at all. So that's what led me to think, actually, um, I don't want to be here anymore. A realisation that I wasn't impartial. (laughs) And you have to be impartial to be a good civil servant. And I looked around and I thought, actually, I, I wouldn't want to work in any of the departments at the moment because I am too political. Yeah. So I handed in my resignation, which a lot of people could understand. I'd always been there. I'd been quite comfortable under the previous administration. But what I did next surprised people because I then ran as an independent candidate in the mayor of London election. Yeah. <laughs> so it was like going from being an official, you know, totally kind of behind the scenes to jumping right into the spotlight. Um, and it was, I don't know if people remember then, it was um, 2011, it was uh, Ken Livingstone against Boris Johnson. They were kind of the two big beasts. Um, but the Liberal Democrats also had uh, Brian Paddock, who was their candidate. And it, they were the same three men who had run before. I've got two daughters. There were so many things going around in my head. But the one thing I thought is, we can do better than this. You know, London is this city of like, you know, over 8 million people at the time. Surely there has to be more in terms of diversity Um, And there were lots of other reasons why. So anyway, I ran in that campaign. I did um, very well for the independent. I came very close to the Liberal Democrats and the Greens in that election. And it gave me a real taste of um, how you can make a difference, even if you don't win an election. So I was promoting a lot of policies around young people. um, And I wanted a youth assembly, for example, in London. That now exists. So that actually happened. That policy was taken up and implemented. Um, I was talking a lot about education. I was talking a lot about drugs reform, and I'm still talking about drugs reform. All those things now have gained traction. So that gave me my first taste in politics. And then um, I would love to have stayed in politics full time since then, but actually it's very expensive, especially when you're an independent. So I got a job in my old university, but then when the whole Brexit thing started and that was calling me back to politics, and on the morning of the EU referendum, I actually joined the Liberal Democrats and my husband's French, it became very personal, the whole Brexit um, uh, issue. And um, I then became their candidate for the mayor of London. Um, So for the last kind of two years, I've done nothing but fight elections across London. So we had the European elections I was helping with, then the general election. And then, of course, we, um, you know, we went into COVID. So the, uh, the the mayoral election was actually postponed for a year, at which point I had to make a tough decision about whether I wanted to carry on as a candidate or not, um, and decided for various reasons that I wouldn't carry on as the candidate but a lot of what I've put in place hopefully will go forward and a big part of that and we can talk about COVID and how this kind of inspired it but it was already there in my um, my own manifesto for the mayoral election was the sense that we need a kinder politics and I was running on a a greener fairer kinder London Um, and it was just the thing that was resonating the most with the public. When I was out talking to members of the public and I was talking about kindness and I was talking about love and I was using words that politicians don't use. And what was interesting for me was the public were really responding to that hugely, but the activists and my colleagues in the party were really nervous about me talking in those terms because it's so unusual to have that spoken about in politics. And the um, the thing I was told most, and it really frustrated me, was it's too soft, it's too fluffy, and nobody's going to take you seriously. And I mean, we can talk about this definitely, but uh, the, the biggest thing for me, the biggest change I would like to see when it comes to kindness in politics is 
being kind in politics is hard. It's not a soft thing to do. It's the harder thing to do because you actually have to back up with real action. And I'm very happy to talk about what I mean on that, but I really want to change this perception that being kind is soft. I think being a populist is soft. It's easy. You know, it's playing to the crowd. It's really easy. Being kind and actually having empathy with people forces you to try and understand what's going on in people's lives and and that's the only way you're going to get good policy if you understand why people are doing things the way they're doing things so it's a much harder approach I think. Yeah absolutely it's always easy to sit and blame and point fingers yeah you would sit in an armchair and do that but kind yeah, of absolutely. And really understand yeah. what's going on. Yeah. Uh, so excited so many conversations to have. Um, <laughs> I, you know, I was struck by so much of what you said, but one of the things when you said we can do better, you know, you felt compelled to go back into it because you knew that we can do better. And um, I talk about that, about that, that ability to tune into ourselves and say, you know, I can do better. I'm not doing great. It's okay. I'm admitting it, but I can do better. It's incredibly uh, powerful, I think. It's an empowering statement. Um, Okay, first of all, before we get into the politics, I guess one of the key things to establish is what does kindness uh, mean to you? You know, what does that look like? Because it's so easy for people, I think, to uh, understand it one in different ways uh, yeah. but two just establishing what that looks like as we start to have a conversation about what mm. it then looks like in the political arena I think kindness for me um, starts with empathy so it, it starts with um, those day-to-day moments that you have interactions with other people where there's a chance that you can try and see something from their perspective, where you can try and understand maybe why they're feeling the way they're feeling or why they're acting the way they are acting. And I, it's funny, when I was in the civil service, somebody who I value a lot, their opinion, and and I trust a lot, said to me, you should always try and seek out the person who there's a bit of friction between you and you're not quite sure why, you know, you, you, you get on with everybody, but there's always somebody who doesn't quite get on with you and you're not quite sure why make an effort to go and speak to them and try and understand what it is you do that rubs them up the wrong way kind of thing. And I think it's that, that we all come at things with different perspectives. We're all carrying different stories. We're all on a slightly different journey. And unless we stop and try and understand where people are coming from, I think we are constantly making the wrong responses. We're constantly reacting in a slightly different way. And actually, if we could just shift that a little bit, we could understand each other more. We could have more effective conversations. We could have better policy outcomes when you apply that to the policy sphere. So I think it's about taking those. It's just about pausing for a bit, I think, pausing for a moment and trying to think, why is this person feeling this way? Why are they coming at this from this perspective and we're so far from that in the political arena at the moment we are so the opposite of that we're so quick to respond it's all knee-jerk it's all black and white there's no nuance and that's why I think we've got in the state that we've got so maybe that was a bit deep I think but it is that kind of it is that kind of everybody's coming at this from a slightly different reason but they have reasons for doing that 
yeah. and can we try and understand those a bit? So let's talk about, so what was it that instigated you to say, actually, we're missing kindness from the political arena? Like, we are missing this and we are not moving forward and yeah. and, and all of that. What, what was that yeah. process in your own mind? I mean, it, there are so many things wrong in society, basic fairness, inequalities. There are so many people who could work, you know, as hard as anybody else and they are never going to get, you know, benefits. They're never going to get a great job. They're never good because there are all these barriers in the way that through no fault of their own are still in place. Mm -hmm. Um, That's just fundamentally unfair. And when you start getting into politics, I think I genuinely think most people go into politics because they want to make the world a better place. I have always thought that until recently. You know, I have a I have a real problem with the current administration, but I don't want to get too because I just think a lot of those values have gone out the window. But um, I think you cannot walk around London, for example, where I've you know a lot of my politics has been in London. But this would be the same in any major city. It would be the same in any coastal town. It'd be you cannot walk around without seeing what's unkind, whether it's rough sleepers. You know, whether it's um, young people who don't have somewhere to go, a safe space where they can stay after school, where they can just be kids, where they can just hang out and play. Um, You, you know, you see elderly people who are living on their own, you know, loneliness. You see all of these things that are just fundamentally unkind. And all of those things are results of policy choices that our public leaders have made. So I completely understand there is a limited pot of money. But what we value and what we place in kind of um, economic benefit analysis has led us to a situation where we have these deep inequalities, where we have visible examples of unkindness around us. And we kind of have got used to that as the norm. That should not be the norm. And you see other countries now you know, we, we've got Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. We've even got in Wales now, they're placing well-being at the heart of some of those cost-benefit analysis. And you get a very different response to where you put your funding. Yeah. I'll give you one example. For a couple of years, I worked on um, a commission on violence that affects young people in London. And we've all heard about, you know, the stabbings and youth violence in London. And the typical policy response from most of the political parties is a criminal justice response. We put more police on the streets. We, you know, we bring in these these police that that swoop in and they tackle the gangs and we lock people up and we post pictures of the big knives that we've... Actually, the only place that I've seen where an approach works is what they did in Scotland, which was they created this unit, which was about starting with the sense that every child needs love and support. And actually, if you look at every child as an individual and you look at their lives, the vast majority of young people who get affected by violence, whether as a perpetrator or a victim, they are living with huge trauma in their lives. And things that traditionally a family would provide support or the state would provide support, that's broken down. So there are these young, very scared, very traumatized young people who are then quite logically going down different routes that are taking them into very dark places. 
And again, it was an empathy approach. I listened to uh, the woman that created the Violence Reduction Unit, and she said, it is about love. You strip it all back, and it is about love. You have to look at every one of these children and wrap them with love. And when you start taking that kind of approach, you have a very different policy reaction. The policy reaction then is, well, how can we provide trauma support? How can we look at mental health support that these young children need? How can we work with families to make sure that they can be more functional in terms of providing that support? And how can we put in place public services that help these young people and their families? So you move the funding from a criminal justice approach to what we call the public health approach which is looking at the underlying causes, not just the effect that you see on the street. And that's the only way we are going to get sustainable long-term change. And that's a very good example, I think, of kindness in politics. It's taking that different approach. Um, And that's why it's so important, because it actually affects the policy decisions that are taken. Do you think, um, I absolutely agree with the whole foundation thing. You know, I have a I have a thing about, you know, mental health first aiders within workplaces, all very yeah. lovely, lovely, uh, but it doesn't change the fundamental issue of why the stress and anxiety is happening yeah. within the workplace. That is based on the culture that you've got within absolutely. that. Absolutely. And so yeah. if you don't address the culture, uh, then we have a problem. And yeah. I guess what you're saying really is we have to address the culture within Absolutely. our, our, our yeah. communities and, and yeah. what's happening that, that has really been caused by policy, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. What do you think some of the key policies are that have happened that have um, caused this unkindness that is ultimately Gosh. happening within the world? Because I just have to say, I think it's fascinating that you were working on something and that we were being told, the public were told uh, on the NHS, no, everything is fine. Everything's, Mm. uh, we aren't getting rid of the NHS. But in Mm. fact, behind the scenes, that was exactly what was happening. Mm. And so trust is eroded. And I talk about trust as being one of the core values within kindness. And um, it's very hard to get it back when yeah. you've done that from an administration as you as you yeah. quite rightly say but anyway I divert because I could talk about this all day and I just love it but but uh in uh the policies you know what what do you think has been put into place that has caused uh some of our underlying issues gosh that's such a massive question um I don't think you could look at any policy area really and not see where we've made mistakes so and I think COVID has exposed a lot of that actually so you look at how little value for example was placed on the care sector Um, and we have we have some of the country's unsung heroes I mean I I'm probably quite biased on this my mum when I was growing up um, my mum was what used to be called a home help Um, and I remember always coming home from school and my mum would have done her in those days you had like several streets around where you lived if you were home help and your um the elderly people that you looked after were in a certain number of streets so she would have done her work for the day and then unpaid in the evening when I was home and my my grandma used to live with us and my dad came home he was a teacher from school my mum used to go back out unpaid and check on all of those people and make sure that they were all okay before they went to sleep, you know, that they were all okay for the night kind of thing. We have people like that across the country in our care sector. There have been people that 
moved into care homes at the start of lockdown and didn't come out again to visit their own families because they were so worried about, you know, contaminating, bringing the, the, the virus in. And yet those people are getting paid the lowest rates in our country for the work that they do, for looking after the most vulnerable people in our society, some of the most vulnerable people in our society. And they're still not being rewarded, even in the latest spending review, that service is still not being rewarded. And so I think, again, if we had a well-being approach like they've adopted in New Zealand, the value of that service would be higher. So you would see more money and more recognition going into those kind of sectors. So I think I think the biggest issue, I guess, you could look at, rather than breaking it down policy by policy area, it's what have we valued and where have we placed the funding? And it's always about following the money when it comes to politics, you know, and that's had a massive, it's had an impact on teacher salaries over the years, you know, they've gone up and down and how well they've been seen or not seen um, on all sorts of industries like that. So I think having that different approach, that would be the, the biggest thing I think that would change things is placing well-being at the heart of budgets and at the heart of spending reviews. And we've started to do it with other things. So, you know, when, um, when governments and departments have to put together their bids for their spending rounds, they have to factor in now the economic consequences, you know, the climate consequences of the things that they want to do. Um, there's inequality considerations that you have to take into account. And I think we absolutely should be looking at well-being and at happiness and kindness. And Because after all, if our policies aren't making people happier, <laughs> then what's the point? You know, there's no point everybody being wealthier or some people being wealthier if they're unhappy. There yeah. really is no point. And I used to be I used to be nervous saying things like that because it almost sounds too basic. But actually, the more I see just how awful some of our politicians are and the ridiculous things they say, the more confidence I'm getting in saying things like this because they're true. They're absolutely true. Um, and the shower that we have at the moment, I just think, you know, it, again, it goes back to we have to do better than we've got at the moment. And I mean, that's a really what you were saying about trust. This is such a massive issue for politics, such a huge issue, because actually kind kindness relies on facts and it relies on evidence and it relies on science because it's too easy for politicians to spin and lie and twist the truth to match their agenda, that's not going to have ultimately a good outcome for the public. Policies built on lies and poor evidence or no evidence will never be effective policies when you try and roll them out. Mm. Um, we could do a whole podcast on Brexit, but we won't <laughs> go there on the basis of kind of what was said about that. But I genuinely believe it's unkind as a public leader, as a politician, to lie to the public, yeah. you know, because ultimately that is going to come back to haunt you because you cannot build sound policy on unsound foundations. You just can't. And what I what the, the hope for me at the moment is we're seeing this shift now in America. You know, we've got the Biden election. Um, fantastic, because one of the things that he's always pushed and the Democrats have always pushed, is the need to get back to truth and fact and evidence. And to me, that's all part of what's kinder in politics. You have to have truth. Even if that, even if the truth is difficult to say, yeah. it's the kinder thing to do because it's the honest thing and you can have a proper 
for policy debate. Yeah. Um, so and yeah, and once, and once you lose truth, then that's where we get into the whole world of conspiracy theories, and that that kind of lets all of that in. Yeah. And um, and that's what we're seeing at the moment as well. And there's just this. Do you think that um, there is a large majority of politicians who are out for themselves or supporting large corporations and therefore policy happens not for the people but for mm, the greater good mm. of a smaller number of people than the than the major public? Do you think that's happening or do you think that these policies are going in and then people are, just don't realise the consequences of the policies? I think it's slightly more nuanced than that I think what I think unfortunately what we have is such a tribal system in our politics with the two major parties that actually and we've certainly seen this with the conservatives at the moment because a lot of the moderate conservatives were booted out before the last general election but whether they're doing I don't think they're doing it so much for personal gain but they are certainly now so wedded to we have to follow the party line regardless of how ridiculous it is regardless of whether it's obvious that we said the complete opposite last week we have to follow this line but they're kind of blinded by that at the moment um, and I'm I'm amazed by how many um, cabinet members Boris Johnson can get to come out on a weekly basis to just trot out lines that they fundamentally disagreed with the week before you know it's just these are grown-up people who are quite intelligent people and yet they will come out week in and week out and say things that we can easily google and see they said the opposite last week or they will lie to our face about getting an eye test in Barnard Castle and things like that. So that amazes me how you can get grown-ups <laughs> to do that on such a regular basis. So I think there's something about the tribal nature that actually people flex the truth or they overlook the truth and they're prepared to be dishonest in a way they wouldn't be in any other sphere of lives. And for me, that was one thing that actually ultimately became really difficult for me, even as a Liberal Democrat. And I, when I say even as, I mean, you know, it's not that they're better than any other party, but I went into politics and still am very political because it's about making people's lives better. It's not about propping up a party. And if you feel like you are having to say something you don't believe in um, to save your party, I know that strategically sometimes that's how politics has to work, party politics. I can't play that game. I just, I think we need more authentic voices in politics. And that's part of the kindness. My, my worry actually is why would you go into politics now? I mean, when I say it needs to get better, why would anybody go into politics, you know? And, I, and I, I, I do quite a few talks in schools trying to get young people, you know, engaged in politics. And I always struggle when people say, yeah, but isn't it really nasty? And isn't there lots of abuse? And isn't it unkind? And don't you have to lie? And don't you have to toe the party line? It's all true. But if you don't get more diverse voices, if you don't get more honesty in politics, if you don't get different people coming in, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse so we can't just run away and say it's too awful it's too nasty a space we've got to get in there and, and improve it 
definitely. Yeah. There definitely needs this almost this influx of people mm. uh, who understand that we need to bring uh, people first over profit. Yeah, um, definitely. And concentrating on that for sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for listening. If you have loved this episode, please do share it with others. Pop on and give a lovely review, but mostly take forwards into your life something that can change someone else's. We are looking for the elusive happiness and kindness is the action that can get us there.